Welcome to Hacks for Life with Galen Jones of James Group Ministries, a Christ-centered conversation that will encourage and inspire you to live a better life. Now let's join Galen Jones of James Group Ministries. Welcome to Hacks for Life. I'm Galen Jones, your host, and I'm here with Scott Rahi. And if you've been listening to the past uh, few podcasts, we're talking about uh, how archaeology archaeology supports the Bible. Uh, We're not saying that it proves the Bible, but it supports um, the Bible. So let's uh, jump right in. I think that's a good way for us to start with this, um, because I like what you said. We've talked about it before, but the idea is that archaeology confirms that at least the portions of the Bible that we can compare against archaeological findings, the Bible is proven to be true. That doesn't mean that the uh, that the full you know scope of the Bible is true. All we can say is, for example, um, in ancient Canaan, Jericho was in the Bible. They talk about how the 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 Israelites came in and they. Uh, laid siege to Jericho by walking around it several times for a week and then seven days on the last day and then the walls fell and we went we not I but uh, archaeologists have been to Jericho and they found it pretty much exactly as the Bible says which confirms that story so we can say that story is confirmed but we have other things that archaeology hasn't uncovered yet but that doesn't so you know we can't use the Bible Sorry, we can't use archaeology to confirm everything in the Bible. But what we can do is we can say archaeology, every time we see something that comes out of an archaeological finding that's related to the biblical narrative, it supports the Bible. Yeah. So if we had no archaeological findings at all, it wouldn't disconfirm the Bible. This is just sort of an additional benefit that we get, something that helps sort of strengthen the case for it. Right. And we, we talked in our uh, previous conversations about how you know, when we look at places where digs have taken place, archaeological digs have taken place, is just a very small portion. Yeah, I think around two two percent. Yeah, yeah, which is just incredible. Imagine if uh, we could get in there and take a look at a lot of stuff. Yeah, if there wasn't all the political turmoil, all the yeah. you know all the conflict over yeah. there, and you know, there's a lot of places that that Egypt and um, you know, different parts around there. You know, Syria and different ones. They won't let you go in and do the do the find, uh, do the digs. And there's places where they're, you know, certain factions like ISIS are going in and deliberately destroying ancient findings because they don't like them. They don't align with the you know their their theology. So we're probably losing things, and that's really a, it's really a shame. Just as a as a general principle, archaeology tells us so much about our past, and it's really fascinating when you read about it. So we've been going through, you know, several examples. We've talked about Jericho. We've talked about, you know, Nazareth, you know, different things like that. We talked about um, this idea that that critics historically have argued from silence that the Bible's not true because certain things had not yet been discovered, like the Hittite people. Right. And then all of a sudden, here come the Hittites. They find it independently, and a lot of, I guess, a lot of doctoral theses probably had to get thrown out because gosh the the Hittites really exist yeah. um <laughs> oops yeah oops it's too you know so anyway we've been going through that and what i want to do we're not quite finished going through some of these examples and i and i do want to say this the examples that i've got on here probably are just a tiny percentage of the actual information out there there's one uh, i can't remember the book but I, I was looking at a book the other day and it said this is over a hundred different things about archaeology that confirms the bible and it's like 
you know, I'm not going through a hundred things in here, but if right. you're interested, there's a ton more uh, to read. Randall Price has got some good stuff. I think he's, I think a book that I've, I think the book is called The Stones Cry Out. So the first thing, and we were sort of talking through this idea of, is there evidence for the Exodus? And we talked about this movie uh, called The Patterns of Evidence. And one of the principles in that movie, and I've seen it several places, not just in this movie, one of the principles is that the way archaeologists date the the you know the periods of time in ancient Egypt are such that there's a there's a growing belief that they've been looking at the wrong time period, mm-hmm. and that's actually part of the case against Jericho is. Um, when Kathleen Kenyon went out and found it, and she said, you know, all the stuff here lines up with the biblical narrative, but based on this this timeline that we believe is is accurate, the things that I found occurred about 150 years earlier. And so when this timeline says the Israelites would have shown up, it was already a ruin. There wasn't anything left. Well, the timelines need to be looked at again, is what these people are saying. And I think there's a really strong case for it. Mm -hmm. And it's an increasingly strong case because as soon as you shift the dates about 150 years to uh, something like that suddenly all of this evidence for the exodus certainly starts appearing out of the ground and it's just they've been looking in the wrong place right you know so we've been going through and we've talked about things like the brooklyn papyrus we've talked about um the the possible palace and the tomb and the statue of joseph we've talked about uh, the city of jericho that sort of thing and so i'm just going to i'm going to go through a few more just because i find it I find it really fascinating just the amount of evidence that's mm-hmm. out there. And so I'm just this is really more of a of a continuing to make the list. It's not exclusively about the Exodus, but some of it is. And the first one, um there's an Egyptian tomb. And we were talking before we started this, how do you pronounce this? It's it's spelled R E K H M I R E. So what do you th- how do you think it should be pronounced? Rickemeyer. Rekemeyer. I think it's pronounced Dallas. That's not right. Um, I think Rekemeyer is as close as I'm able to get. So this tomb, when they found it, um, remember before we say this, the, the skeptics will tell you that there's no evidence that there were ever Egypt, any Israelites in bondage in Egypt because there's just no evidence for that. That's what they'll tell you. Well, there's a tomb, this tomb of Rekemeyer, um, they found records and pictures of slaves making bricks. So let me start. Um, let me just read read some some things. I've I've excerpted this, and so if you Googled the tomb of Rekemeyer, um, wow! You know what might be interesting? What? Um, <laughs> what, Galen? I just thought I just thought of this. Um, I wonder what AI would say about this kind of. You stuff. know about that Chat GPT thing or whatever yeah, it is. Yeah. I don't know. It'd probably say quit asking me questions about that. That's not how you pronounce the name. Yeah. Anyway, let me just try it real quick. No, yeah. I don't want to get distracted. Yeah. I just thought about that because I, I have been uh, just toying with it um, with some different biblical books mm-hmm. and stuff like that. Um, I was impressed by the the um, the approach that it took. Um, the way that it constructed an answer to your questions. Yeah, yeah. So when I just Googled the thing, I got this back. It's from PBS. Nova Online. Rekemeyer was a governor of Thebes during the regions, or sorry, during the reigns of Tutmosis III and his son Amenophis II. His tomb is one of more than 500 found in the Valley of the Nobles in ancient Thebes. Uh, ancient Thebes, not Thebes. So we got something out of that just by running the name. But I want to re- let me read this. This. Um, 
just really quick and I, i'm looking for the reference and i don't see it and it's my fault I'm, i normally like to give references but i don't have this one but maybe if someone's listening and they want to just grab some of the stuff that i'm reading and type it in it'll probably take you to the reference so it starts with this chapters uh, exodus chapters one and five vividly describe the slave labor to which uh, the hebrews were subjected in egypt um, and then there's a quote uh, from Exodus 1. The Egyptians made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick. That's from uh, Exodus 1, uh, 13 and 14. Taskmasters and supervisors oversaw the slaves, ensuring that the daily quota of clay and straw bricks was met. The texts are powerful. We can easily see in our mind's eye the filthy, mud-caked, rod-bruised, sweat-drenched Hebrew slaves. From Egypt's old kingdom and all the way through to the end of the Hyksos period, about 2700 to 1500 uh, to 1550 BC. And remember, we count that backwards because it goes 2700, 2600, 2500, all the way to zero, and then you get into mm-hmm. AD and then you start counting the other direction. So, all the way through the end of the Hyksos period, uh, various Egyptian records have survived concerning brick making, but it is only in the New Kingdom's era era, roughly 1550 to 1069 BC, that we begin to find records of slaves from the Levant region being put to work in the brick fields. We have reports of brick quotas and the building purposes to which the bricks were put. We even have a report from an overseer complaining that there is insufficient straw in the region for his team to meet their daily quota of bricks. This all matches the situation and time period envisaged in Egypt, I'm sorry, in Exodus 1 and 5 perfectly. In addition to these written documents, scenes adorning the lavish tomb chapel of the Egyptian government official Vizier Rechemeyer from around 1450 BC bring the biblical text to life before our very eyes. This scene, with its adjoining texts, shows Nubian and Syro-Canaanite slaves fetching and mixing mud and water to make bricks, shaping the bricks in molds then casting them and leaving them to dry before measuring off the results and carrying them to where they would be used. All this activity happens under the watchful gaze of rod-wielding overseers. Altogether, the scene offers what biblical scholar and Egyptologist Professor Kenneth Kitchen has described as a vivid visual commentary on the biblical text. So, at least in the matter of bricks and hard service, the biblical text matches with uncanny precision what we know from ancient Egyptian sources, sources that later Israelite scribes could not have had access to. Are we supposed, sorry, are we to suppose that a 7th century Israelite scribe conducted fieldwork in Egypt, perhaps examining Rechemeyer's tomb paintings to ensure his Exodus novella had the flavor of authenticity? Of course not. Far better to conclude that in this case, the proximity between the biblical and non-biblical accounts arises because both reflect in their own ways and for their own purposes, events that actually occurred. Wow. Now, does that mean that the entire story of the Exodus happened the way the Bible says? No. It means that we have a pin in the map that says, here's here's an element of the story of the bondage of the Israelites leading to the Exodus. And it's consistent with what you find in Exodus. And I think the point that this article, this unknown article makes is really important. This notion, there are so many people that that have said, well, I think the Exodus is just basically someone writing an early novel, sort of a fictional novel, sort of a legend of how the Israelites came into becoming a nation. Um, So 
And I think the argument is a really good one. Is this supposed person a few hundred years later um, supposed to know with as much certainty as we find in the tomb? Is he supposed to have gone in there and seen the tomb and go, oh, I'm going to write my story based on this. This is how it happened. It's just it stretches the imagination right, too far. Right. Um, so and, and just to give a sense of it, because, you know, there's people that will still say if in talking to the Internet atheists, the ones that are online, because I tend to talk to people on Facebook and different places. If we ever reach that point of the conversation, they'll bring up the Exodus. Uh, interestingly enough, they do it less often these days, but they continue to bring it up and they'll say, you know, there's just no evidence um, for the Exodus. And there were, there's no evidence that the Egyptians ever brought the Israelites into slavery or any of that stuff. And, you know, this is a growing body of evidence that I'm describing. One of the most interesting things is um, the fact that they've actually uncovered, archaeologists have uncovered what what's, I think it's considered the largest excavated city in the ancient world. It's a city called Avaris, and I think I've mentioned it in previous podcasts. This is this whole city is filled with Semite graves, Semitic weapons, bones of animals that are buried with these people. It's not something that the Egyptians did. They didn't bury their animals with them, but the but Israelites did, Canaanites did. Um, and the conclusion that they're reaching is that, in fact, these people in, in Avaris, and there's about 20 other of these places around it um, that haven't been ex- excavated to this degree, as, as Avaris says, the, the conclusions they're coming to is that these are Syrians, Canaan people, Canaanite people. These are not Egyptian people. So we have a, we have a large body of Semitic people that are around that time, and we have the, the town that they lived in, and we've excavated it, and we found their tombs. And I think I've mentioned... Um, I think, and I know I've talked through this a little bit, um, and I, so I may be repeating some of this. But you know, we've talked about the fact that the evidence indicates that when you're looking at the bones and stuff, that earlier on the these people were prosperous, and then all of a sudden their bones began to have deficiencies that indicated malnutrition and the hard work that we did. You would that you would uh, see that a slave would have gone through. Right. So it looks like they went from p- prosperity to great uh, poverty and hard labor very quickly. And so that's consistent with what the biblical narrative says as well. Um, And also this, and you know, again, I I know I'm repeating some of this. It doesn't it doesn't hurt to say it more than once because this is if there's an area where the where the atheists just absolutely hone in on. There's really two in the Old Testament. Well, I mean, they go after the creation, but they really go after the story of Noah's Ark and they go after the Exodus. And I'm not. There's, you know, I, I haven't really studied much about Noah's Ark, but um, this I have, and there's a lot of evidence here. So repeating it again is not a bad thing. Um, in Genesis 45, um, hurry, Genesis 45, 9 and 10 says, Hurry and go, to, go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your Lord, just thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Um, you know, I don't have the whole screen. Come down to me, do not tarry, you shall dwell in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near me, you and your children, and your children's children, and your flock, and your herds, and all that you have. Avaris and all those those settlements, that's in Goshen, that's in the historic Goshen area. The the area where they found what they think is Joseph's tomb, it's in the it's in the area of Goshen. So again, that lines up with the biblical account. In the burial sites, one of the things that's interesting is, you know, we in, in the in the narrative of the plagues, what was the tenth plague? The killing of the firstborn. The killing of the firstborn, the, the male firstborn specifically. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. And um, when they started looking at these, 
these graves they were finding that, you know, typically they say that when they examine these graves, about 25% of the, these, these uh, skeletons, you know, in, uh, all over the East, mm-hmm. all over the ancient Near East, or about 25% of them are, are, are children. In Avaris, about 50% of them were children, which is wow. a ridiculously high number. And um, they appeared to die roughly in the first three months. Not, you know, um, the graves of those who made it to adulthood were about 60% female and 40% males. What does that tell us? Well, um, we know that there was a, a campaign to kill off the firstborn, the firstborn males, and or to kill off all the males, not the firstborn. They kill off all the males, and that's why Moses had to be put in the basket and snuck in. And right. so we've got evidence of that. All a bunch of the males are dead. There's not that many to be to grow to older age because so many of them were killed off. You know, forty percent. That's a that's a big percentage wise. That's a pretty big difference. Yeah. Um, we do. So we also see evidence of mass graves around there, not specifically in Avaris, but just in Egypt. Uh, which could point to the fact that that there is um, there was a plague and a whole lot of people died and mm-hmm. talking about just shoving lots of bodies into this common grave to get rid of the bodies so they didn't infect other people that sort of thing. And I, I know we're we're running long here, so what I want to do is I want to spend a few minutes. <clears throat> one of the most interesting things that I have found is you know you hear people say the Bible contains this information you don't find it outside of the Bible mm-hmm. and we found it in archaeology they found a papyrus that's called the Ipaware papyrus and I do know how to pronounce that one Ipaware Ipaware papyrus and what do they get the, no, the, they, they get it from the fact that it was somebody named Ipaware that wrote it I think <laughs> um, but it's really interesting so why don't we stop here and next time let me go into the Ipaware papyrus and I'll walk through it because I think you'll see some things that are just really interesting okay cool Look forward to it. You've been listening to Hacks for Life with Galen Jones of James Group Ministries. The James Group is a nonprofit Christ-centered organization that seeks to serve the community by offering skilled caring support for anyone in need. For help, call 972-243-4673. That's 972-243-4673. For questions and comments, email galen at jamesgroupministries.net. That's G-A-L-O-N at jamesgroupministries.net. Thanks for listening. Join us next time for another Hacks for Life with Galen Jones.